All right. One more vision. It's a great one. And then we'll do the epilogue. So this is Revelation 22. Let's read it. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servant what must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book uh, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So one last quote from Osborne here. He says, the new Jerusalem will not only be the final holy of holies. That's what we just talked about. It's also going to be the final Eden. It's the fulfillment of Eden. It's the new garden. More than a restored or regained Eden, it'll be a transformed Eden. All that the original garden could have been is expanded and intensified. So we'll talk about this last vision here, the new garden. Notice that the new Eden that we just read about will have a river with living water and it will have a tree of life. It's going to have a river. It's going to have a tree of life. I'm going to give you some broad references here just so you understand how you can trace this theme all the way through the Bible if you want to think through this from like a biblical theology perspective and where these images have their origins. 
in Eden, one of the things you read about is there was a river system and there was a tree of life. You read about all these rivers flowing in and out of Eden and God puts a tree there, the tree of life. When you come to the promised land, it's described as a land of milk and honey. And I understand that milk and honey don't show up here. They're not necessarily referenced in that original Eden account, but there's food and there's abundance and there's provision for God's people. And that's how he describes the promised land. In Ezekiel, if you can make it all the way through Ezekiel's long, long, long prophecy, you get to the end and he just goes on and on and on for eight chapters at the end about a brand new temple. And he tells this weird story where he says, saw a little stream flowing and it got bigger and it got bigger and then there's a mighty Russian river flowing out of this temple and he says there was trees on either side, there was 12 trees, all of that imagery shows up here in Revelation. Zechariah has a vision about living water flowing from Jerusalem. Psalm 1 describes the righteous person. What are they like? They're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. All of these images get recycled all the way through the Old Testament, and John picks them up here. So a river and a tree, and it's also going to have a throne. It's going to have a throne of God and of the Lamb. And when you read about this throughout the book of Revelation, just be mindful that the Lamb shares the throne with the one who sits on the throne. And there's a Trinitarian picture there of Jesus and the Father sharing this throne. New Eden will be a place where God's servants worship. Uh, it will be a place where God's people see God. And if you were here Sunday, we talked about seeing. And I told you that seeing is connected to knowing in the Bible. When God sees a thing, it means He knows a thing. When God's people see a thing, it means they know a thing. So Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. It's not just talking about physical sight, but it's talking about an intimate knowing. Um, Lad says this is the beatific vision of God, and Bauckham explains that to see God's face will be to know who God is. So you're going to see God. Uh, the New Eden will be a place without night and a place without end. That's verse 5. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. So you understand in these last three visions, John's describing to you what heaven's going to be like. And just like he's done all the way throughout the book, he's resetting the camera. And the first thing he says is, being in heaven is going to be like this new relationship. You're going to be a citizen and you're going to be a son and there's not going to be any wicked there. And then he resets it and he says it's going to be like being in a great city. And he describes the city and its greatness to you. And then he resets and he says it's going to be like being in the new Eden. Everything that Eden could have been has come to fruition. All of these visions describing heaven for God's people in the end. Okay, Epilogue. Last little bit of this book, Revelation 22, 6 to 21. I want you to notice that three times Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Three times he says, I'm coming soon. And I'm pointing this out to you for two reasons. You understand that our old ancient Greek manuscripts don't have 
red letter versions like modern English translations do. If you go back and look at the oldest Greek manuscripts, they don't even use a lot of punctuation. No quotation marks, no periods. You just sort of read, and if you, you could do this in English. You could read words in English and figure out where sentences start and stop and which words went where. But there's no clear punctuation. There's no clear quotation marks. And when you read really, really smart people, they look at these last verses, 6 to 21, and they admit, we're not really sure who is saying what here. There's some ambiguity on when is Jesus speaking, when is the angel speaking. Here's what's not ambiguous. It's that three times Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And we talked about that idea of soonness, I think, week one. Because in the opening chapter of the book, John sees a vision of things that are soon to take place. So if you weren't wrestling with how could it be soon, it's been 2,000 years of church history, you can go back to week one and recycle on that idea of soonness. So three times he says he's coming soon. Also notice this, blessing number six and seven show up in the epilogue. So I've told you throughout this study there's seven blessings in Revelation, and the sixth and the seventh show up here. So verse seven is the sixth. In verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Revelation, the very first blessing is for those who read this book and hear this book and keep it. Read, hear, keep. Now it's just keep. Because you've gone all the way to the end of the book. You have now read it. And you've heard it. And what's left is for you to keep it. And the seventh or the sixth blessing, rather, is for those who keep it. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. That idea of washing robes or having clean robes shows up all the way through the book of Revelation. It's the idea that you have washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb. You've not shown up with your own good deeds, but your own good deeds have been washed away uh, by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, Jesus says here there's going to be a recompense in verse 12. He's bringing his repayment to repay each one for what he's done. And all these Images, do you see the tension between you're saved by God's grace, you're saved through faith in Jesus, and as Paul said in Ephesians 2, you're saved for good works, to conquer, to overcome, to endure, uh, to, to wash your robes and trusting in Jesus, but also understanding there's going to be a recompense or a repayment according to what each one has done. So blessing number six. Blessing number seven, Guthrie says the goal here is patient endurance. Uh, and Beale says the aim here is to induce holy obedience. I think sometimes evangelicals are so afraid to be called legalists, we just end up saying all you need to do is believe and the rest is sort of optional. But Revelation over and over and over again is calling God's people to actually endure and to live holy lives. 
uh, in the end, the wicked will be fully and finally given over to their sin. I don't want to talk about this a real long time, uh, but verse 10 is an odd verse where it says, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. Which sounds odd that God would say that or an angel would say that. You would think God would say, hey, knock it off. But the verse also says, let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And I think what's being described here is that in the end, God's people are glorified and they will live in righteousness and holiness and purity. And the wicked will be fully and finally given over to their sin. And there will not be any wicked people ultimately in hell who are repentant and remorseful. There will be people in hell who are fully given over to their sin and they are, as John describes them here, they are the sexually immoral, they're murderers, they're idolaters, they're not repentant, but they're those who love and practice falsehood. They are that forever. And Paul describes the initial stages of this in Romans 1 when he says God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. They rejected the truth about God and there was a consequence. God gave them over to their sin. This is the full and the final example of that. Um, there is a final invitation for sinners to come to Jesus. Because you're not in eternity yet. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. And so there's an invitation. Uh, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Uh, there's some debate about, Shriner explains it, uh, if the audience is invited to come to Jesus or if Jesus is invited to come again. And he leads, leans toward the idea that all of these uh, comings here are addressed to human beings. And so you can wrestle with that. I think it's one final invitation at the end of the book. There is a warning here about adding to God's word. I don't think I gave you the reference, but you can look at Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 12. Moses says almost the exact same thing to the people when he gives them God's word in uh, the earliest chapters of the Bible. He gives them the Torah, and he says, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. If you tamper with this, God's judgment is going to fall on you. And John says something uh, remarkably similar here. Poitras, I think, has a good quote that we would do well to remember. Uh, God's word is holy. It's distinguished from all merely human words. No person is authorized to add or subtract from the Word of God. Revelation underlines its character as the Word of God by explicitly prohibiting tampering. God's Word is sure, needs no updating or supposed improvements. Um, we live in a day and age where people openly tamper with it and just say, we don't like this part, so we're going to rip it out. We're going to ignore it. And we live in a day and age where many evangelical churches just ignore parts. They're not going to rip it out. They're not going to be so brash as to say, we don't like this part. They're just going to say, we're not ever going to talk about it. We're going to pretend it's not there. We're not going to bring it up. We're going to talk about other things. And we're just going to ignore it. And I think the, the preaching and teaching ministry of any church ought to start with, 
We're not going to tamper with it. And also ought to extend to, we're going to proclaim all of it. We're going to be faithful to proclaim the full counsel of God's Word. Uh, Book of Revelation and the canon of Holy Scripture end with a prayer. That's how the whole Bible ends. A prayer for Christ's return and a plea for God's grace. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So it ends with a prayer and a plea for grace. All right, I'm going to give you some concluding thoughts. And these concluding thoughts are for Revelation 21 and 22, and they're for the whole book. And we're going to move through these pretty quickly. I don't have a lot to elaborate on here. Uh, Just have several things, and we'll wrap it up. Number one, the book of Revelation centers on the glory of God. That's fundamental. Uh, Beale says the major theological theme of the book is the glory that God is to receive for accomplishing consummate salvation and final judgment. Ultimately, God is glorified in the salvation of His people, and He's glorified in the judgment of sinners. Both of those things serve to bring God glory, and that's the ultimate aim of the book. The book of Revelation, whatever interpretive approach you want to take, whatever framework you want for the book, even if you disagree with me, the book is not about the Antichrist. The book is not about us. The book is about God the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb and the seven spirits sent out to His churches, and it's ultimately about His glory. That has to be fundamental in how you read the book. Next, the book of Revelation bookends the Bible and it mirrors the book of Genesis. We've already talked about this. I don't really think we need to say a a whole lot. It is just remarkable how these closing chapters parallel the opening chapters of the Bible, like two big bookends that just fold it all together. The way that it begins is very, very similar to the way that it ends. The book of Revelation is a powerful summons to worship the triune God. Look what Guthrie says. Revelation should fill your tank with energy to worship and a longing to worship. If you can work your way through the book of Revelation... You can gather with the people of God and have zero desire to participate in worship. You have completely missed the point of the book of Revelation. 100%. And we've talked about that. I've tried not to be too preachy and not to harp on you guys too much. But people worship in this book with joy and enthusiasm. And it's not held back or restrained. And I'm not saying let's show up Wednesday night and Sunday morning and be a bunch of wild, out-of-control, crazy Pentecostal charismatics. I'm just saying if you understand this book, you will worship. You will be a person eager to worship God with God's people, to express that, to do it loudly, to do it joyfully, and no one's going to be able to stop you. It's a summons to worship the triune God. Uh, Book of Revelation is a powerful summons to endure as disciples. 
Look what Poitras says. Another really, really good book on Revelation, by the way. The Returning King, Vern Poitras. This vision is meant to encourage faithfulness, confidence, and hope in Christians, especially those who face persecution. God will fully achieve His purpose and Christians will inherit His full blessing, however grim the present circumstances may be. I know that you and I, at least to this point, don't live in a country where we face open persecution. But we do live in a country where we often look around and say, this looks pretty grim. This does not look all that promising. And Revelation is a powerful call to stay the course and to endure. Patient endurance is the goal. Overcoming and conquering is the goal. Stay the course, endure as disciples. Book of Revelation gives us reason to long for Christ's return. The longing for the Lord's coming stands at the heart of the Christian faith. Apart from Christ's return, His redemptive work remains forever incomplete. His return is the only sure hope for the future of the world. I know at Easter we always quote the verse out of John where Jesus says it's finished. We think about the work of redemption being finished and accomplished and it's done and there's important truth in that. But Lad is right that until Christ returns, the redemptive mission that he came to accomplish is in some sense incomplete. And as the people of God, when you understand that, there ought to be a longing for it to be complete, for it to be brought to fulfillment and consummation, which happens when Christ returns. We'll end with this quote from Mounts. The close of the book is the confession that answers to the problems of life do not lie in people's ability to create a better world. You live in a place where non-Christian people think they have the ability to create a better world. And Revelation says, the answers to the problems of life do not lie in your ability to create a better world, but in the return of one whose sovereign power controls the course of human affairs. Redemptive history remains incomplete until Christ returns. It's for the final act in the great drama of redemption that the church waits with longing. So we'll end like Revelation ends and we'll pray. Father, we're grateful for this vision of the end. Um, this new creation, this new relationship, this new city, this new Eden. We thank you for the promise that Christ will come back for his people. We pray that you would make us men who lead our families and our church in worshiping. We pray that you would strengthen us to endure as followers of the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with a longing for the Lord Jesus to return. Uh, we're thankful for his coming, for his living and his dying, for his rising from the dead, his ascending to the throne of the universe. Uh, but we long for his return when he sets all things right and he brings his recompense with him and uh, he ushers in this, this vision of the end that we're reading about tonight. And that what we read about on the page becomes reality in the world that you've made. Uh, we believe the book of Revelation when Jesus at the end says he's coming soon. 
And to that we say amen. Come Lord Jesus and we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.